Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here and good to be with you. And it's good to see those of you who are here this morning and, and certainly those of you who are joining us online. We're glad you're a part of this morning, wherever you're watching from. You may be uh, alone, may be isolated. Um, hopefully, you'll feel somewhat connected with the church body this morning through this time of worship. Um, it's also a privilege to be able to open God's Word with you this morning as we do each week. And we believe that all of us, all uh, human beings, have particular uh, needs and longings that are, are universal. We all, have, uh, we all long for meaning, for purpose, for fulfillment, freedom, forgiveness, restoration. And actually, these are not just modern longings that we have. Uh, these are, are things that people have always longed for. And we think that there's a reason why we long for these things, that these are longings that, that God has put within our hearts. And the claim of the Christian faith is, is that these longings can be met through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're doing in this series that we're in at the moment is we're looking at a number of people who literally encountered Jesus, who met him and had their needs met and their lives changed by him. And today we're going to look at a story that comes uh, in John chapter 8. The story, it's familiar to many of you, it's the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Now the context of this story comes in the previous chapter, John chapter 7, where we read about uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is this seven-day feast where the people celebrated uh, God leading them out of Egypt and leading them towards freedom in the promised land. And on the last day of this feast, Jesus stands up and he declares, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He talks about this, this promise of living waters, this vibrant spiritual eternal life. He stands and says, if anyone wants that, if anyone wants all their needs and longings met, you can find them in me. And the crowds are divided. Some of them hear that and go, that's exactly the guy that we've been waiting for. And they're really excited. Others hear it and say, this guy's blaspheming. We've got to do something about this. And the religious leaders at this point, they start to plot a way of getting rid of Jesus once and for all. They come up with a plan to catch him in a trap. And the plan is this, starting at verse 53 of John chapter 7, just a couple of verses before what you'll find in your uh, worship guide this morning. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, 
beginning with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So the setting for this story is in the temple courts. This was the place where the scribes would often gather with their disciples and they would sit and they would teach them about the law. And the scribes were the recognized uh, religious experts on the law of Moses. They took the various laws, some of them which were only a sentence long, and they would interpret them and expand them and they came up with what the law means and how you would apply it what you could and you could not do. And the law was so central to the Jewish way of life that they would gather uh, here in this setting and people would come and listen to them as they would explain the law to them. And Jesus comes then into their turf and he sits down and does what they usually did. He gathers a crowd, a large crowd around him and Jesus starts teaching them. And it's into this setting, this very public setting, that they bring this woman in order to trap Jesus. They, they bring this woman in who has been caught in adultery, and they bring her before Jesus to pose this legal and theological challenge to him. And in this passage, we see a, a contrast between the way the scribes treat this woman and the way that Jesus does. We, we see a contrast between Bad religion and good religion, if I can put it like that. And the first thing we see is this. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now when the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Now in one sense, they were right to ask the question because... Uh, the law in places like Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 did prescribe the death penalty for people in this woman's situation. But actually, John tells us that they didn't ask it because they really cared about the answer or they wanted to do what was right. Rather, they were using it as an opportunity to condemn Jesus, to put him in a trap. And the trap was this. If Jesus were to contradict the law and say, no, that's barbaric, let this woman go free, he would be seen as a heretic overturning the law of Moses. On the other hand, if, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he was a, a teacher and preacher of compassion. And so if he was like, no, let's stone this woman where she stands, like that would seem to go against everything that he has taught and modeled to this point. And so Jesus is put in this position where he's given these two options, neither of which look particularly good. Either overturn the law of Moses, get branded a heretic and punished by the religious leaders, or, or stone the woman, uphold the law, and fall in line with the religious leaders of the day. And you can imagine the, if you like, the glee on the scribes' faces and in their hearts at this moment. They're like, we've got them. They're thinking, we've got them now. There is no way out for Jesus. And all the while that they're proud of themselves, they're completely oblivious to the fact that they are putting this woman through an incredibly traumatic experience. 
I mean, they are upholding the law, but in the process, they are treating this woman with no care or compassion at all. And although they consider themselves the upholders of the law, the way in which they are actually conducting this whole situation is really unjust. I mean, she was brought not into a private trial, a private place where she could be tried justly. She was brought into the most public place they could find. She's humiliated, probably no sense of dignity, terrified before the people gathered there to cast judgment upon her. There's, there's even this nasty tone of chauvinism in their words. They say this, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. You can almost hear the sneer in their words. And what's more, actually, the law they're referring to was explicit that both parties who had been part of the sin, the act of adultery, were to be tried equally. Yeah, there's no hint of the man anywhere in this passage. It seems as though they only bring the woman in before Jesus. And so the scribes have created this whole thing in the name of justice. They see themselves as the upholders of, of the law, the representatives of God. But there's, there's so much about the way in which they do it that is deeply unjust and deeply unpleasant. This is bad religion. This is religion that, that points at others but is deeply hypocritical. And maybe when you hear this, you, you think, you know, you know what? That's exactly what I hate about religion. Actually, th I mean, think about the cultural, the sort of the cultural narrative today. Right? What is it? The idea that comes to mind when people talk about religion, well, often people think that religious people are those who like to, to point at others and condemn others, Im impose you know, rules on others, tell, pe other, tell people what they can and ca cannot do. Uh, we often think about religious people as making others feel condemned, maybe not really caring about others feelings, but using people as pawns uh, to, a, to a greater agenda that we have, all the while being riddled with hypocrisy, shouting even louder at others as a way of covering up the abuses and scandals within. And if you hear that and you think, you, you think that is why I hate religion. That is what, what I hate about religion. Well, I agree with you. And I think Jesus would as well. Because I don't think that is what Jesus came to establish. I don't think that's what God wants us to think of when we think of Christianity. And I would put it to you that the problem may not actually be religion itself. The problem may not actually be religion, but rather something that actually dwells in the hearts of the religious and irreligious alike. Uh, have you ever heard of a, a woman named Justine Sacco. Um, I don't know if you have, but in one sense, you should not know the, the name J Justine Sacco. You should not know who she is. She was nobody special, not, not particularly remarkable, uh, nothing particularly remarkable about her. She was a 30-something-year-old PR woman from New York. And back in December of 2013, she made this lo the long journey from New York to South Africa to visit family during the holidays. And as she traveled, as she, she began to tweet 
acerbic little jokes about the indignities of traveling uh, to her 170 Twitter followers. Justine was just would just tweet these jokes, and no one that that no one would you know no one would ever like or retweet. It's no big deal. And then while she was sitting in Heathrow, Heathrow Airport, waiting to board a plane for the final leg of her trip to Cape Town, she sends us one last tweet. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. She chuckled to herself as she pressed send. And surprisingly, no one replied. Uh, Or not surprisingly, no one ever did. She gets on the plane, puts her phone on airplane mode, goes to sleep, doesn't think any more of it. Eleven hours later, she gets off the plane in South Africa, turns on her phone. The first message says, it's from someone she hasn't spoken to for years. It says, Justine, I am so sorry what's happening to you. The next message is from her best friend. It says, Justine, call me now. You are the number one talked about thing on Twitter. You need to phone me. She's like, what's going on? She opens Twitter. Suddenly, she wishes she hadn't. Over those 11 hours, here's here's what happened. One of those 170 Twitter followers sent that tweet to a journalist who retweeted it to some 15,000 followers. From there, people started chipping in with their thoughts about this particular joke. Not many of them found it funny as you you would imagine. And some of them rightly, I think, called out the insensitivity of it. Others took it a step further. They started sending abusive tweets back to her. Her Twitter feed was... feed was filled with thousands, literally thousands of messages saying that they wish she would get attacked, raped, catch AIDS, and die. People took it another step. They started Googling her, and they found out where she worked. They tweeted her employer and demanded, thousands of them demanded that they fire her immediately, which they did publicly via Twitter. So 11 hours later, she gets off the plane, arrives in South Africa, turns on her phone. Her life has been dismantled. She is one of the most hated women in the world at that moment. She has lost her job, and people have even figured out what plane she was on so that they could meet her at the gate to take photos and live tweet her shame and embarrassment. Now, was she right to tweet what she did? I don't think so. I personally don't find it funny, and I definitely don't think it's wise. I think people were right to call out the the insensitivity and the racially divisive nature of the tweet. But here's my question. Was the Twitter mob any better? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. John Ronson, a, a journalist who's, who's written extensively on, on shame and the impulse to shame others, he says that the impulse to shame others is something that many of us, if not all of us, experience at some point. And although some people were no doubt you know, genuinely upset and had real justifiable reasons to, for explaining how they felt about it, for many, actually the shaming impulse is rooted to self-preservation. We want to tear others down to make ourselves feel better, perhaps even to, to mask things that are going on in our own lives and to divert attention from them. 
And he suggests that there are two types of people, those who value people over ideologies and those who value ideologies over people. And he says that things like Twitter feed that second type of person because Twitter is what he calls a mutual approval machine. It's a place where we surround ourselves by people who feel the same way that we do. And, and we love it when they approve us and say, yes, I like that, that I retweet that, I endorse that. And it makes us feel good. But as soon as there's someone within the machine who, who, who feels otherwise, we tear them down to, to make ourselves feel better. And a couple of weeks after the Justine Sacco incident, uh, John Ronson got in touch with the journalist who first hit retweet and started the whole thing off. And, and he asked the, him, how does it feel to have been the source of this massive story? And you know what he said? He said, it felt delicious, but I'm sure she's fine. It felt delicious. I'm sure she's fine. She was anything but fine. The lady had gone through things because of a moment of stupidity, had gone through things that cost her her job, affected her health, her mental health, her family, her well-being. And I think there's something of that going on in the scribes in John 8. And when I read John 8, a part of me thinks this feels like a very ancient, very distant story. Like it feels very different from our, our own world, doesn't it? But actually, the spirit of it feels scarily current. This whole idea of cancel culture, this impulse to, to tear others down as a diversion for what's really going on in our own hearts. And, and they bring this woman before Jesus. They, they, and they put him in a trap, humiliating her in the name of justice. Yes, she was wrong. Yes, she, she, she has done something that was against the law. But were they any better? In the name of justice, no. They, 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 in the name of justice, they stooped to an incredibly unpleasant level. You see, they favor the ideology over the person. They effectively say, it feels delicious. I'm sure she'll be fine. Frederick Nietzsche, uh, writing, I think probably about Twitter, says this, whoever finds monsters, or whoever fights monsters should see to it that the person, should see to it in the process, he does not become a monster. Whoever fights monsters must be careful that they do not become a monster. It's so easy, easy in the name of justice to become deeply unjust and unpleasant in the result. And I don't think that this is an impulse that is confined to religion. I think many of us tear down others as a way of making ourselves feel better. I mean, moments like this public shaming on Twitter or in the temple courts, wherever it happens to be, we, we touch on something that's rooted in many of our hearts, a desire to make ourselves feel better by tearing down others. And often that comes from a place of knowing not everything is right in here. But if I can just divert people's attention, maybe they won't notice my own brokenness. Our outward actions are often overcompensation for the internal brokenness. We say it often, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. 
and the scribes here, they passionately uphold the law, but at what cost? They think they will make the world a better place, but in the process, they make it, a, a, they make it worse. They make it more cruel, more insensitive. Now, to be clear, the law was good. I'm not saying laws and uh, rules are, are, are bad. Actually, they are good things. And, and the reason that God gave such strong warnings like he does here in the, or in the Old Testament, he gives warnings, and in the New Testament like is because he cares about people. And he cares about how we, we, we live our lives. We were created to live life to the full, and it pains him when we do things that, in effect, bring death upon ourselves. And here this woman is put in a place where she is shamed and embarrassed because people have loved the laws more than her. But God loves people and his laws are a way of pointing us to the life that, for which he created us. And the mistake the scribes make is to, put, is to put the ideology above the person, to love the law rather than the person. And, and, and they seem to think that they are enforcing the law, that in enforcing the laws, you can change the person's heart. But, but that just does not work. You know, Fred Gray, one of the most uh, significant civil rights uh, lawyers in American history, he spent time working with uh, Rosa Park and, and Parks and, and Martin Luther King Jr. on the, the Montgomery bus boycotts and many other things. And Fred Gray Looking back over his life and at all that he had achieved, he, he uttered this sentence, which I, I find sobering. He said, I was able to change the laws, but I couldn't change the hearts. I was able to change the laws. I couldn't change the heart. And in a single sentence, I think Fred Gray has summed up what is wrong with bad, toxic religion. Religion that puts laws, ideologies above, above people. You can enforce the laws all you want, but it will not change the heart. The law is not the problem. The law points us towards the good life that God wants for us. The problem is, is when we put it in the hands of corrupt individuals, it becomes monstrous. The law can't change hearts. And the irony of this passage is that the only hearts that, are, that seem to be, be getting changed are the hearts of reli the religious people. And they're not being changed for the better. And enforcing the law, they become more and more toxic, more and more ungodly in the process. This woman encounters the scribes and it's a horrible experience. She feels condemned. She feels dirty. She feels humiliated. But when she encounters God himself in the person of Jesus, it's entirely different. It's life-giving. It's beautiful. This is what happens. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Jesus, faced with this controversial question, bends down and starts to write on the ground, which admittedly seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, what is going on here? Well, you see, the scribes took the laws of Moses and they expanded them to, to a huge extent. In fact, let me read this to you. It's, it's quite funny, but, but actually before I do, remember I said that the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast, but actually this took place on the eighth day. And in Leviticus 
23, it points out that the eighth day was like a bolt-on extra day to this seven-day festival. And the eighth day was to be treated like, like, like the Sabbath. And according to the law, the Sabbath was to be treated as a day of rest. And the, the scribes took this idea of a day of rest and they expanded it and they just came up with this just massive list of what you could and couldn't do on the day of rest. And, and, and here are some of them. The, the forbidden actions are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, whitening wool, combing wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing for the purpose of sewing two stitches, writing two letters. Stop there. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But writing two letters... It was illegal, according to the scribes, to, to write two letters on the Sabbath. So Jesus gets down and he starts writing on the ground. So what's going on there? Well, actually, the scribes said that in not all circumstances is that illegal. Because what if you were to write on something that is not permanent? For example, dust. So they actually said you were allowed to write on something that is not going to keep that writing. So you could, you could write in the dust. In fact, weirdly, they said that you could write in fruit juice. I don't even know how, how you could do that. But, but as Jesus gets on, down on the ground, I think he's saying, look, I know the law. I, and, I, and I know your interpretation of the law inside and out. You are not dealing with some amateur hack here. You are dealing with someone who knows and upholds the law. And we don't actually know what Jesus wrote on the ground. And commentators have speculated and debated that for years. And I think actually the most plausible interpretation, and, and, and it is quite popular, um, is that what he, what he was writing to or alluding to at least is a verse from Jeremiah 17 which says this, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I think that is probably what he was either writing or alluding to. And the reason I think that is because you think back to John 7 and Jesus stands up at the feast. What does he say? All those who are thirsty, come to me, get the streams of living water. What do they do? They say, no, we're going to arrest him. They literally forsake God and cut themselves off from streams of living water. And Jesus writes to the dust saying, this is what effectively is happening to you. You are becoming temporary. You're going to be blown away because you have rejected me, the stream of living water. The irony is that by pursuing a religiously pure life, they get exactly the opposite. They miss out on the living water, the vibrant spiritual life that Jesus came to offer. Jesus writes on the dust, and as they see it, it starts to, to sink in. They, they realize that Jesus is talking about them, and Jesus says this, let anyone who is without sin be the first to cast the first stone. And this is a brilliant response, because actually, the, 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 the verse that they are quoting requires that the person that the, the requires the person who throws the first stone must be the, wit, the one who wit, is the witness to the crime. So when coming to Jesus and saying, go on, stoner, they're actually being very selective with the law. And so Jesus, so think about Jesus' whole action here. He is writing on the ground and saying, I know the law. 
and I know your interpretation of the law. I know it better than even you do. And I can see right now that you are being selective in the law. And he throws it back into their court. He says, any one of you who is without sin, as the law requires, go on, throw the first stone. But be careful Because if you throw that stone, you better make sure that there's nothing in your heart that requires a stone to be thrown at you. People are, they're like, oh man. It's like a a mirror reflecting back what's in their hearts and and they don't like it. And so they melt away all the accusers until only, the only people left are Jesus and this woman, the adulteress and the stream of living water. Or as Augustine said, the two were left alone misery and mercy. I love that. This woman who has been shamed, humiliated, and abused by those who claim to represent God now finds herself face to face with God, with the embodiment of mercy. And I can't imagine what must have been going on in her mind at this point. Probably a mixture of confusion, relief, and fear. What's going to happen now? Is Jesus going to pick up a stone? She's standing there not sure what's going to happen. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And in a moment, everything's turned around. That moment where she's facing death, it's gone. She's set free. Everything's changed. She's in, she encounters the scribes. She feels awful condemned. She meets Jesus. She feels free, made alive again. And then in this moment, I think we learn two powerful things about Jesus. And the first is that Jesus sees the heart. He knows what's going on in here. I mean, Jesus is no fool. He knows that this woman probably is guilty. Why? Because at the end of the passage, he says, go and don't do it again. Jesus knows. But he can also see beyond the external actions to know what's on, going on in the heart. And indeed, if it was Jeremiah 17 that Jesus was alluding to, actually, Jeremiah 17 talks about this This very thing, it says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The implicit answer is no one. No no one can understand it, but I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their ways, according to what their deeds deserve. The heart is deceitful. There's only one who can understand it, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus can see the heart. And he can see the heart of both the woman and the scribes, both the religious and the irreligious. He sees beyond the actions and sees what's going on inside. He, he, he sees beneath the religious activity of the scribes and can see the, the, the corruption and the hypocrisy in their hearts. And in the same way, he can see beneath the law-breaking actions of this woman and see the vulnerability, the hurt, the need, the pain, the fear in her heart. And he turns the whole mess of a situation on its head. Jeremiah 17 says, You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring them to the day of disaster. And that's exactly what Jesus does. On this woman's worst day of her life, when she's at her absolute weakest and lowest, what does he do? He shames her shamers and removes her shame. 
He takes away her fear and he puts the fear of God into the so-called representatives of God. He takes away her day of her destruction and makes it their day of disaster. To the scribes, it's like he says, you are in danger of missing out of the very thing you, have, you, you, you claim to have access to, the streams of living water. Don't miss out on it. And to the woman and to all of us, he says, if, if, you, if, if, you, if, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. The only qualification you need is, is your thirst, nothing more. Come to me and drink streams of living water. Jesus knows the heart, which means he knows everything about us. He knows everything I do, everything I think, everything I say. He knows my motives better than I do. And in one sense, that's terrifying because there's stuff in here and in here that I'm glad that none of you get to see. And you're probably glad you don't get to see it either. And part of me thinks, I don't want anyone. I certainly don't want God seeing that. Jesus sees it. But he also loves me, despite what is in here and in here. He sees our hearts and he loves us. And he says, like he says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. John John 3, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He sees our hearts, he loves us, and he offers us living water. Now, I don't want you to mishear me or mishear this passage and think that Jesus doesn't care how we live. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think Jesus, I think God cares deeply about the way we live. I think Jesus cares about the law. He said in Matthew that he didn't come to overturn it, but to fulfill it. I think actually Jesus understands and appreciates and upholds the law more than the, 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 the scribes do. Because he, just, he doesn't just look at the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, what it was intended to do, which is to point us towards life to the full. I, I, I think Jesus cares about the way we live. He isn't saying that we can just go and do whatever we, we, we like. He says, go and leave your life of sin. There, there's something better for you, he's saying. Look where this has got you. Follow me, you'll get something far greater. He, he empowers this woman to live a far, far better life. He doesn't expect her to, expect her to experience mercy and then just go on doing the same thing. No, mercy is meant to transform us. It is meant, us to, meant to, to bring us, you know, to direct us towards life to the full, which raises the question, if the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart and laws do not change hearts, what can change hearts? Well, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? There is one person who can understand it. And I think that very same person is the one who can cure it. Jesus not only sees our hearts, he heals our hearts. Jeremiah said, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me and I will be saved. And God replied this, I will give them a new heart to know me. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I w- it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, which they broke. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
neither do I condemn you. God's answer to the problem of the human heart is not more and more laws that stand like an external judge and go, you got that wrong again and again and again. Rather, God heals our hearts and gives us a new heart that can know him by filling us with streams of living water, by writing the law on our hearts, not as an external judge, but as an internal compass. He comes and dwells within us. He gives us, uh, he forgives us in our, in our failings and he empowers us to, to live new lives, which is why when Jesus says to this woman, go and sin no more, he's not saying go out and do the impossible. He is saying, I am now through this encounter empowering you to live life to the full. Jesus encounters her and, and, and changes everything. She, she met the, the bad religion. It just made her feel awful and condemned. When she met Jesus, it made her feel alive and loved. Perhaps for the first time. Now, I, I don't know when you hear this story, um, how, how you think it connects to you. Maybe you've thought this is an unusual story and an unusual sermon. I, I don't know, but... Just maybe you you you've heard as you've heard me reflect on it. You maybe identify with little bits of it. I I don't know where you might see yourself in this story. You know, perhaps there are some of us here today who, if we're completely honest, would say, "Yeah, I I think I, I think there's a bit of the scribe going on in my heart." Uh, maybe you're aware of areas where you tend to think that Christianity is about rules rather than relationship. Maybe you're aware of things that you've said, attitudes that you hold that actually mean you come across as condemning or judgmental. Less like Jesus, more like the scribes. If so, the appeal to you is this, don't miss out on the streams of living water. I don't think when Jesus wrote in the dust, he was saying, that's it. There's no way back for you. I, I, I think he was saying, you are in danger of missing out, but there is so much for you. Come to me, all who are thirsty, scribes included, and drink. If you know today that you have maybe got a view of Christianity that is, that is about rules rather than relationships, where you come across like that to others, or, or, or you may be using external religious action as a way of covering up for the brokenness that is internal to you? Come to Jesus. Ask him to heal your heart and fill you with living water today. Or it may be that you, that you identify more with the woman. You're, you're aware of the brokenness within. Th things you just think, I so hope God doesn't know that about me. Because if he did, he, he couldn't love me. Well, he knows. And he says over you today, neither do I condemn you. And my hope is that you come to believe that today. That you come to him, that you experience the streams of living water, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, washing you clean and making you new. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you know us. You know us more intimately than we even know ourselves. Thank you that you uniquely see our hearts and yet you love us. 
Thank you that you did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to rescue it, to save it. You, you said, I come to give you life and life to the full. And I pray that today uh, we would trust and believe that promise. I pray for those of us who identify with the scribes that you would come and soften and, and, and heal our hearts. We have attitudes that are maybe not representative of how you truly feel. I, I pray that you would make us more like you. I pray that where sometimes we just use external religious activity to cover up what's going on in our hearts, I pray that, that we would be honest and authentic, um, have the courage to confess. And would you fill us with, with, with genuine living water? I pray for those of us who feel ashamed, broken, vulnerable today. Pray for the courage to believe your promise of neither do I condemn you. I pray that today people would encounter you, Lord Jesus. Pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, with the streams of living water, that it would bubble up to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.